0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: It's been incredibly healing to be a part of a movement of other LGBTQ Christian leaders who are, are bringing that sense of welcome and belonging into our, our Christian communities, our faith communities. They were healthy and there were many ways in which they were a lot healthier, happier, and more whole once they were able to fully accept themselves and open themselves up to give and receive love.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com/notseenradio. That's p a t r e o n.com/notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement working for full inclusion of LGBTQ plus people in Christian communities. Julie Rogers has played a significant role in shutting down Exodus International, the largest conversion therapy organization in the world. And she was also the first openly gay person to be hired by an evangelical Christian college. So today we're talking about her recent book, out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. Julie Rogers, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you so much, David. It's really great to be here.
0: Well, so I want to take us back to a particular moment. Christians are aware that all the important stories in our traditions seem to start or revolve around apples. And so I want to go back to 2015 and to that evangelical Christian college where you had been hired, and there's an open, what's called a town hall chapel, and a straight student stands up and talks about the conditions At that college and the way in which that college treats its gay, lesbian, bisexual students and how the college could maybe become more welcoming, says this directly to the president of the college who's there on the the dais. And as the student turns around to walk away from the microphone, another student hurls an apple through the air at the student. And so that's where I want to start because that was where you were working in 2015. I want to ask a little bit about what it was that you were doing there.
1: Absolutely. So I was working at Wheaton College outside of Chicago at that time. They are a sort of conservative evangelical school that is known to be like a flagship evangelical school in the country. And I was the first openly gay person hired by an evangelical college. I was at that point committed to being single and celibate for the rest of my life in an attempt to try to remain in communities like Wheaton that believed marriage is uh, between a man and a woman and sex is only permissible in a marriage. So essentially believed same-sex relationships were sinful. And I was working as a chaplain. My role was to kind of minister to students, queer students who would come out and were really struggling, were really vulnerable at the school. But then also I think the college, it seemed over time like the administration might have also wanted me to protect them from claims of discrimination against the LGBTQ community. Because I think what there there seemed to be a strategy that if they could prove that they were accepting gays who essentially lived straight looking lives, uh, who weren't actually in relationships, giving and receiving love, creating families, settling down with a partner we loved, that if they accepted people like that, that they could live into those beliefs, then they were just discriminating against behavior, same sex behavior. And it was untenable. It was not, I could not thread that needle for very long. And that, is what i write about in my book out love among many other things
0: well what i love about your answer is that you've already begun to show my listeners the depth and complexity of what we're talking about here real lives with real commitments to multiple communities. And one of the things that you're doing in your book, Out Love, is you're talking in depth and with intimacy about the responsibilities that you felt towards your family, the responsibilities that you felt towards the various communities of care with which you were a part, and also responsibilities towards those whom you had really deep friendships and affections along the way of the various kinds of journeys that you've made along the the sort of story of your life. So you've already begun to give us a little bit of this. You mentioned that at the time you were working at Wheaton College and you were visibly gay, single, and celibate. I think that maybe my listeners would benefit from hearing about what that balancing act was like and at that particular moment why you were choosing to have those three identifiers.
1: Well, I had come out when I was 16 years old in a really conservative Christian community. And my mom believed she searched the internet to find out what to do if you have a gay kid. And she took me to a, a sort of Christian conversion therapy program, also known as an ex-gay ministry. And I spent 10 years trying to become straight or to at least live a straight-ish life to be able to like potentially marry someone of the opposite sex and pursue healing from my same-sex attractions. And I found over time that was not possible. I learned over time that every major medical association in the country had denounced it, had said that it was harmful, that it didn't work. And I also began to see the devastating consequences of teaching that said people who were some version of LGBTQ were sinful and broken and bad, essentially. So I came out in a different place and said, you know what? I can't change. I am obviously just gay. And at the same time, I knew that if I were to start dating or entertain the possibility of sharing my life with a partner, that I would lose everyone that I loved. I had spent my whole life in ministry and my whole life in evangelical communities and I really couldn't cope with the thought of losing my family and losing every, all the relationships that have been most dear to me. So I thought maybe if I can just be single and celibate, I can I can not only stay in these communities, but also help sensitize them to the gay people in their communities and to know that we didn't choose to be this way, that we can't change it, and that there are actually ways in which we might be a gift to the community. So I took, I, I was Writing and speaking about that, and I took that job at Wheaton in hopes of being able to move people and also to so that the queer people in those communities could know there's a place for them and that there's the possibility of a a positive future where they could tell the truth about themselves and hear that they're loved and genuinely wanted.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement, working for full inclusion of LGBTQ plus people in Christian communities. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. Well, At the midpoint there in your book, Out Love, as you're working through this identity of being gay, single, and celibate, one of the things that you say at several points in the book is that you held traditional views about Christian marriage. And for my listeners, I'd like for you to articulate what that meant to you at the time that you were there in that space. What did you mean when you said that you were committed to traditional ideas of marriage?
1: It meant that so with, what the leaders in my communities taught were that was that everyone is born male or female. There's no such thing as a transgender person or non-binary person. We're all born male or female. And that marriage is only the relationship in which two people enter into a lifelong heterosexual commitment and monogamous marriage for the rest of their lives. And that any sort of sexual expression outside of that union was forbidden. So sex before marriage, any sort of gay sex or same-sex love, all of that was forbidden. Any hand-holding with someone of the same sex, any kissing, any snuggling, all of that was forbidden. So if you couldn't fit into that sort of like very narrow straight norm, then you were relegated to lifelong
0: singleness and celibacy. And this is part of the complexity that I want my listeners to understand, is that there was a significant portion of your life where this wasn't antithetical to the way that you thought. This was, this was part of how you thought about God's design for the world and for humanity, even as you were becoming more and more bold in claiming your identity as a gay person. Now, those are my words, not yours, so I want to make sure that I've said that in a way that you recognize, or would you say it in a different way?
1: Oh, no! That's absolutely what I would say, and it was something that I believed simply because that was all I had really been exposed to. I was told by leaders in my community that if you embraced your same sex attractions and entered into like a fully affirming gay life that they they said that all of those people were giving into their flesh, that they were living a sinful lifestyle. they said that homosexuality was a sin that you really couldn't be forgiven for because it was a lifestyle people chose and not a moment of sin from which you could repent, like theft or murder or something. And I I had no reason to disbelieve them when they said that everybody that was in the quote unquote gay lifestyle were on drugs and having like wild, rambunctious sex and just a lifestyle of full on debauchery and abusive. You know, I was just like, oh, wow, that sounds really bad and scary. I don't want to be a part of that. It wasn't until really the internet when I started being able to keep up with friends who came out and to see that they're, they were healthy. And there were many ways in which they were a lot healthier, happier, and more whole once they were able to
0: fully accept themselves and open themselves up to give and receive love. And you talk about those examples that you saw of people that were healthy. You also speak very candidly in the book about people that you met along the way in your participation in these various ex-gay conversion therapies. In particular, you talk about a couple of men that you knew who were identifying as gay, who left the program, and who got into some serious physical health and harm issues around drugs and risky behavior. And what really struck me, in reading your book is that you initially had a narrative that, as you said, was given to you by the leaders that says, whenever somebody gives into the flesh, they're going to start doing drugs, they're going to hurt their bodies, all those sorts of things. And you talk about this very candidly with these friends of yours. You also talk about it candidly in some cases with your own body. But what I, what I, came to find out and what I came to learn in reading your book, Out Love, was that over time that narrative changed for you. And it wasn't that the giving into the love and desire that you felt was really the root of the problem, but rather these very stories that said that you are not part of God's plan, that you're not actually worthy of love. That was actually the damage that was leading to these other risky and health damaging behaviors. Now, When I'm reading that in your book, I want to make sure I've got the message right. Have I read you correctly or would you say that in a different way?
1: I realized that it was actually their teaching that that evoked such shame and such hatred for our bodies that was driving people to those destructive tendencies, whether it be addiction, self-harm, suicidal ideation. And that wasn't necessarily uh, true of the LGBTQ community as a whole. And so I started to realize that those of us who, in fact, almost everybody I know who I was in conversion therapy with was self-harming, and literally none of us have been engaging in self-harm since we got out. And there's like a clear line: but go queer before and after. And it just took a while for me to be able to to see that and put all those pieces together.
0: And so as we're moving towards break, what I want listeners to be hearing in this complexity is this book doesn't pull any punches. As we're getting into this conversation, what are some of the things that have kept you hopeful as we've moved through this? Now that we've begun to talk about some of the dark places here, what are some of the things that have brought you hope in this journey?
1: You know, it's been really moving to see quite a few Christians or people who shared my beliefs originally who have been open to moving with me who have maybe initially thought that it was, you know, queer people were sinning by nature of who we were. But over time, we're to watch me and other people I love and say, hey, you know, I, I feel like you're actually really healthy. I love seeing how happy you are. I love seeing you in love. And they've been willing to rethink their theology and come out into a place to say, you know what, hey, I was wrong. And I think God might really be moved to delight in, in the LGBT people in our community And it's just—it's given me a lot of hope that people can change, and that our stories actually can make a difference in the world.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement working for full inclusion of LGBTQ persons in Christian communities. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Out Love: A Queer Christian Survival Story. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement working for full inclusion of LGBTQ people in Christian communities. She played a significant role in shutting down Exodus International, the largest conversion therapy organization in the world, and she was also the first openly gay person to be hired by an evangelical Christian college. Today we're speaking about her recent book, Out Love, a queer Christian survival story. Well, I mentioned in my brief introduction about you that you worked and helped to shut down this organization called Exodus International. And in your book, Out Love, you don't just talk about Exodus International, but you talk about other gay conversion organizations. So you talk about a group called Living Hope that you worked with and that you were a, a patient of. I don't know a better way to say it. You also talk about being part of a halfway house run by Living Hope called Hope House. and then later your work and involvement, both as a participant, but also then as a speaker for Exodus International. For listeners who may be unfamiliar with the general scope of these kinds of programs, if you could briefly give us an overview of where they came from and what they were trying to do.
1: Yes, so Exodus International was the largest organization in the world that proclaimed freedom for homosexuality through Jesus Christ. And they had over, at one point, over four hundred smaller organizations that were run locally and independently around the world. That all were affiliates and came together for a, a conference that they hosted every summer. The organization I was a part of was called Live. Is actually still alive and thriving. It's called Living Hope Ministries in Arlington, Texas, uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I was taken. I was taken there by my mom when I came out at the age of sixteen. And the way that looked was there was the the executive director, Ricky Chalet, would meet with me and other people like me for pastoral counseling meetings every week, where he used reparative therapy talking points. So so it's just sort of pseudo-scientific beliefs that are widely discredited as as wrong by every major medical association in the country. He used those teachings about why he believed we were struggling with same-sex attractions and what we could do to find healing from them. He would weave those into sort of a religious guidance counseling session. And Then in addition to those weekly meetings, I would do, I would go to their support group every Thursday night where that was like church youth group. In some ways there would be like, we would sing worship songs and then there would be like a broad talk about the Bible. And then we would split up into small groups that were more like a 12 step recovery program. That was where we would confess our attractions to people of the same sex, or we would confess if we had acted out sexually with anybody or been watching shows that featured queer characters, anything gay, we would confess and receive accountability for in the group. And in addition to all of that, we went to to youth retreats in the winter and we went to Exodus conferences every summer. And there were many ways in which you know, we were all just little queer Christians, like we, whatever we called ourselves, whether it was same sex attracted or, you know, eventually gay, whatever we, it, we were just little queer Christians. And there was a sense in which even though that environment exacerbated the sense of shame we felt, we already felt so much shame by coming from families that didn't accept us as gay and coming in churches that said we were disgusting and an abomination. So it wasn't a new thing for us to feel shame it was new for us to be able to find some other people who who understood and my peers who understood that sense of shame and who made us feel a little bit less alone by nature of connecting so so the other conversion therapy survivors in the group with me i'm still friends with so many of them to this day i wish we'd all met in a different context it would have saved us a lot of years of trauma and a lot of years lost to coping mechanisms that we had to turn to to cope with the trauma it was really fascinating I think that's why many of us stayed around for a while.
0: One of the things that I want to make sure that my listeners understand is you mentioned a moment ago that you really found a sense of solidarity, kind of sharing and comparing stories with these other people in, at that time, the Living Hope meeting, which was part of this larger Exodus International. But one of the things that I think comes through again and again in your book is that there was a real attempt to control that solidarity. Like, for example, you were not allowed to know the last names of the people that you were sharing these intimate details of your life with for fear that you would form some kind of emotional bonds with them or more intimate bonds with them. And so at the same time that you were gaining this kind of sense of camaraderie, you were also being denied in many fundamental ways, human relationship. And in fact, there's a point at which you say that you were like 25 or 26 years old and your most significant relationships were with people where you didn't know their last names. Now, that just blew me away. Yeah,
1: yeah, you're right. We we couldn't share any last names, any identifying information about ourselves, like where we went to school or church, because the leaders feared that if we weren't supervised, we would potentially meet up and start like dating or having sex or falling for each other. So it was very controlled. And, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So I don't think I realized that was that weird or strange until I started making friends outside of the group in my 20s. And they were like, Hey, this is weird. It seems like you might be part of a cult because your best friend is like a 45 year old man referring to Ricky Chalet, the leader of the ministry. And it's a bunch of people who you don't know their last names.
0: That's super weird. Well, and the other thing that really rang out for me, and you, you've begun to talk about this, was the analogy of same-sex attraction, gay feelings, admitting that you are gay, the, the way that was compared with and almost modeled on addictive behavior and something that you needed to recover from because it was like a substance abuse problem. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So we were referred to as strugglers. They would call us people, which strugglers, the same-sex attraction. And it was basically, they believed that we needed to starve ourselves of any, you know, masturbation was like a big deal. Anything that would associate us with our desires for people of the same sex, we had to starve those desires and those parts of ourselves. So it ended up, you know, it's one thing to confess like that you uh, substance abuse. That's something that it's a behavior that you can choose or not choose. It's totally different to treat an intrinsic part of who you are and your body's natural response to somebody that you feel attraction for or love, to treat that response as something that is an addictive behavior that has to be shut down. And I found over time that it led to a real fragmented sense of self because you can't really shut off just one part of yourself. If you say no and start suppressing, your natural desires to give and receive love and sexual expression, then you start having to shut down your emotions and you start having to shut down, cut off all kinds of relationships because it's starting to get too intimate or too intense. And it just, it led to people kind of suppress, 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 no, 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 bad, bad, bad. And then they would binge on some sort of really unhealthy expression of their sexuality because they needed some sort of outlet.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement working for full inclusion for LGBTQ persons in Christian communities. Today we're talking about her recent book, Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. You've mentioned this, but I want to make sure that my listeners are clear about it. You've said at a couple points that during your participation in Living Hope and Exodus, you were called on to confess, confess, confess. I wonder if you could spell out a little bit of the kind of graphic detail in which you and others who were part of this program were urged to confess. This was not simply saying in broad terms, I had these feelings, but rather Almost to a point scale, you were expected to give explicit detail about things that you had done. I wonder if you could say more about that.
1: Yeah. So, in some of the small group times where I said it was that starts to feel more like a 12 step recovery program, everybody would go around and give a number one through 10 to rate their week. And the point scale, if you were a 10, it meant you had anal sex that week. If you were a nine, you had oral sex that week. If you were an eight, maybe you like, got hooked up with somebody through a webcam and then five was like porn was like a five and then masturbation, like a two. And then they would start with the tens would go first and they would confess what they had done and try to figure out root, you know, the trigger. Like maybe they had been reprimanded by their boss that day. And that was what made them want to go masturbate. And it's really wild because maybe they just wanted to masturbate because it was like a Tuesday, but in those groups, we were always encouraged to find a psychological reason for our surge of same sex desire. And so those groups were, we, were, we weren't allowed to talk. Was, crosstalk was forbidden, but the leader, once you went around and confessed sort of what you had done that week, the leader would help you identify your trigger so that you could make a plan for next week when you found yourself wanting to, to do that again.
0: So what strikes me about that is that as you were part of this kind of group confession, what comes out again and again in your book, Out Love, is that your own story was noticed by the leaders of these organizations. And they began to invite you not just to share your story and your confessions in these particular small groups— But you were invited more and more to do it publicly and to do it on stage. And so I want to ask about that. And then I want to ask some follow on questions. But first of all, for my listeners, talk about how things transitioned from you speaking in these small groups to you being more and more invited to speak on regional and then eventually national stages.
1: Yes, so. I, when I was 17 years old, six months after I was taken to Living Hope, Ricky asked me to give my ex gay testimony for their donor banquet. And I was like, Ricky, I don't really have an ex gay testimony, I don't think. And he was like, Well, you can share about how God started working in your life and about what you think God will do as you continue to submit to his will. And he, he kind of helped me craft a testimony. And It was well-received by the audience, so he started taking me with him whenever he would speak in churches, and before he spoke, he would have me talk about my story, and he encouraged me to weave into it various things that might help explain why I struggled with same-sex attraction, so theories around a sort of flawed relationship with a same-sex parent, and over-identifying with our opposite-sex parent, and held that longing for same-sex love was eroticized at puberty. Again, none of this is factual or true. This is not, that does not cause people to become gay, but in his teaching, that was his explanation for why people end up gay. So I would go, I would give this talk before him and um, eventually Exodus International heard me giving my testimony and they asked me to do the same thing for their conferences before their speakers would talk. I think just illustrate
0: their points in human form. You mentioned that this was happening in the case of Ricky Shillette before kind of donors banquets, and I imagine that there was also a, a donation component with Exodus International. So part of my takeaway from reading about these experiences where your stories were put on these stages and made public in this way, the way that I would say it is that your story was both monetized and weaponized. Now, when I say that, does that ring true for you or would you say it in a different way?
1: Absolutely. I felt the weaponized most acutely because people would then use my story to point to other LGBTQ people and say, well look, if Julie is going to keep seeking the life of denying herself so that she can live for Christ, then you can do it too. And then it's become something that's no longer just a personal story, it becomes a sort of mandate.
0: Well, and the the other thing that struck me as I was reading your book Out Love is that Over time, as you were saying these parts of your story, and these were intimate, very kind of close details about your life that you were sharing you would be coached by Ricky Chalet, the leader of Living Hope, and by others about how to make your story better. Or they, they would come back after you had given a talk and said, well, I really wish that you had left in this other part that was maybe a little bit more salacious. And what struck me about that was it seemed to me as if these powerful people who you were depending on them for affection, and in some cases for your very circumstances of where you lived and your work, they were, they were shaping your story. And they were re-narrating your story. And when I got that impression from the book, I'm wondering when I say that back to you, did it feel like that to you? Or does it feel like that to you? Or would you think about it in a different way?
1: Absolutely. When you're young, I was young and I was impressionable and I was so eager to please them and so eager to be found acceptable by God to make my parents proud. So it felt like that was my path to be good and to be seen as good in their eyes. So... When you're that impressionable and, and earnest and eager, it's really easy to take their suggestions, like the suggestions of someone like Ricky Chalette, as the voice of God. And I took that, took his advice, heard it as God speaking to me, integrated that into my life and my story. And then at that point, there's so so many, it's so hard being human and life is so complicated. And anytime we share our stories we are highlighting some aspects of it, omitting others. And I found that what I thought was the truth of my life was actually just Ricky sort of connecting various dots and stringing together some questions or some some facts to create a narrative that supported his belief system. And that you could easily, in fact, string together a totally different narrative from the exact same set of facts of my my life. And it would lead me in a totally different direction. And eventually I did that and found that I was much healthier and much more integrated and much more
0: whole. Well, as we're moving towards our next break, I just I want to reflect on this for just a moment more, because it's so clear, particularly in the first parts of your book, Out Love, that you wanted a strong relationship with your mother. You had through the years a good, if complex, relationship with your father, but you wanted a good relationship with your mother, but she kind of turned her back on you. And in the wake of that rejection, you wanted a really good, strong relationship with Ricky Shillette, the leader of this organization, Living Hope. And what strikes me about that is how much not just stories, but affection can be weaponized in the complexity of what we're talking about, because in both cases, both your direct parental relationships, but also these kind of pseudo parental relationships, these various figures of authority were utilizing your need for affection as a way of controlling and manipulating you. And it's heartbreaking. But what I'm getting from this is that this is not unique to you, but you're turning this outward and saying, what happened to me is happening to children all over America. Is that too much to say, or is, is that an accurate statement?
1: I hear from young people every single day who are currently in these programs who are just so desperate for, for love and affection, and they are being told that if they want to please God and if they want to remain connected to, to their loved ones, then they need to see healing for their same-sex attractions. And they need to seek to live a straight-ish life, a straight-looking life. And it's an impossible choice for a young person to find themselves in. And I'm sharing my story so that they can know there's, there are more ways of living out uh, the complexity of what it looks like to have a faith in sexuality that initially might seem to be in conflict. And there are ways in which they can bring them both into the light that actually are a real gift to our communities and make the world a little bit more
0: beautiful. And one more piece of this, as we're talking about the kind of weaponization of affection, it also struck me, particularly early in your story that you write about in the book Out Love, that that these figures who were using your need for affection to try and manipulate you into living and having a certain story, it also struck me that there were some very kind of present people in your journey, who were supportive of you in your identity as a gay woman, in your identity of figuring out who you were. And these figures like your mother and Ricky Chalette actually manipulated you into turning your back on those supportive people. And in some cases, almost throwing them under the bus. Is that too strong a way of saying it? Or would you say it in a different way?
1: Absolutely, they believed that the reason that I thought I was a lesbian was because of some coaches at my school who were out and open lesbians, and that they had recruited me and planted these seeds within me that wouldn't have have grown uh, if I hadn't be- if I hadn't come into the contact with them, which is just not true. But that's what they believed, and I had no reason to believe differently at that time, because it was just so confusing to try to navigate the world in my skin and my body at such a vulnerable time.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement working for full inclusion for LGBTQ plus people in Christian communities. We're talking about her recent book, Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture, and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement working for full inclusion for LGBTQ plus persons in Christian communities. She played a significant role in shutting down Exodus International, the largest conversion therapy organization in the world, and she was also the first openly gay person to be hired by an evangelical Christian college. Today, we're speaking about her recent book, Out Love, a queer Christian survival story. Earlier in our conversation, we started out talking about your role as an openly gay chaplain at Wheaton College, which is to the west of Chicago. It's a bastion of kind of evangelical Christianity and Christian higher education. And you said something early on in the conversation that I wanted to come back to. You said that you... It was important to you to work at Wheaton College because you wanted to stay in places like that so that people who were having the kind of struggles that we've been talking about in this conversation would have someone that they could talk to and, and a resource that was not simply giving them uh, a line that said that they were somehow deficient, deformed, th- that they were intrinsically disordered. But I, I'd love to come back to that and linger a bit on what it means to you to be that presence that you maybe didn't have or you didn't have enough of when you yourself were going through these struggles and these real sort of crises of identity?
1: It's been deeply meaningful. So all of us just want to be seen and known and loved exactly as we are. And I found that it was was a long journey for me to get to a place of finding that in my own life and in my faith communities. And I sort of had to piece things together from different places. Thank God for therapists. But it's been incredibly healing to be a part of a movement of other LGBTQ Christian leaders who are, are bringing that sense of welcome and belonging into our, our Christian communities, our faith communities. And I honestly was also just so impressed with the students at Wheaton who took it upon themselves. They came out at a college where they were explicitly told they weren't wanted and they challenged the institution to, to make changes, to become safer for people like them. And they created communities where communities hadn't belonged before. And I don't think Wheaton would have hired me if they hadn't first taken that initiative and been loud about being there and refusing to be quiet about it. So there's a sense in which it's been incredible for me to be able to go provide that place for students. But there's also a sense in which the resilience of these students and young people created the possibility for me to even be able to
0: serve in those kinds of roles. Well, I want to linger there for just a moment, because you quote a line from the evangelical leader, Pat Robertson, at one point in your book, where Robertson says, gays don't reproduce, they recruit. And there's a kind of narrative that says that any student that would go to a Christian college, as you say, a place where they know that they're not wanted, they must have simply wanted to cause trouble. And what I have gotten from your narrative, but also from the conversations that I've had with my own, with people in my life, but also just from what I've learned, is that people are constantly learning new things about themselves. And so a student may go to a Christian college and midway through may suddenly realize that all of these things that they've been fighting and and refusing to notice about themselves are blossoming. And so it In many cases, if I'm understanding correctly, it's not a matter of the students decided to go to this Christian college and be agitators, but rather they awakened to themselves in the midst of this educational experience and began to realize that there was no place for them. Now, when I characterize it that way, when it's not like activists coming and agitating, but rather it's real humans trying to work out their identities, I feel like I'm on the wavelength of your book, Outlove, but I want to check in with you and make sure.
1: Absolutely. And they might have even chosen a Christian school because they wanted to try to find a community where they would have to suppress their sexuality because they were scared of what it would look like to be open. The, The repression runs so deep. The need to not accept yourself in Christian communities runs so deep that there's a range of reasons students choose a conservative Christian college. It could be their parents tell them that's where they have to go and their parents are the ones paying for it. It could be that they are wanting to find a a place where they'll be discouraged to accept themselves initially. And then they get there and realize, hey, this isn't healthy. I'm not thriving here. But very few of them, when it comes down to it, know students No, no LGBTQ people are wanting to be in environments that are hostile toward them, where they have to perform or where they have to suppress their deepest longings in order to belong.
0: Everyone just wants love and
1: acceptance, and they're doing the best they can to find
0: that. This is something that struck me in your book, Out Love. It's the second day that you're at Wheaton College. You've just been hired to be a chaplain there. And you're sitting in on a meeting with both staff and students of the chaplaincy and and the students that are there involved in the various programs. And at the end of this get to know you session, the head of the chaplaincy program, if I'm remembering it correctly, says, okay, and now there's one more thing. And he looks around the room and he just basically starts saying, you are loved you are loved. God is love. God loves you. God made you to be loved. You are loved, and that is what we have to say about you before we say anything else about you. You are loved. Now, I'm paraphrasing it, but what strikes me about that moment that you talk about in your book, and, and you say it was an emotional moment for you, it was an emotional moment for me reading it. So often, as a person who walks in Christian circles, what I see is the kind of cultural, social warfare Christianity. Onward, Christian soldiers, we're going to win the culture for Christ, and we're going to throw the apples at the heads of the people that are daring to, to speak something that we don't think is the truth. And here in the midst of this instead was a colleague of yours on the second day that you were there basically saying, all of that is hogwash. What this really comes down to is you were fearfully and wonderfully made, however you are, and God loves you however you are. I, that struck me. I want to make sure that listeners hear about that moment, and not just from me paraphrasing it, but I'd love to just take a, a bit of time here and and relive that moment with you and hear about it from your experience of it.
1: Absolutely. It was one of the more moving moments. There was a, a colleague of mine in the chaplain's office who was um, actually responsible in many ways for me being hired there who at Refuge, which was the the community group for LGBTQ students, he wanted to end on that note every single week. He was an ordained minister as well. And every single week he would say, now it's time for the most important thing. And he would pronounce this blessing over the students that he had written specifically for them. And it just cut through all of their different, their shame, their fears, their anxieties, And in a place where they were out and open about who they were, they were able to hear God loves you. And he would say, this is the first fact of your existence before anything else can be said about you. This must be said, you are loved by God.
0: What sort of effect did it have on you the first time that you heard that?
1: I felt myself tearing up and I felt myself realizing I had never heard anything like that in a Christian community where there was no but. It was not like we love you, but we believe that God's design is for marriage between a man and a woman. Or we love you, but love means we have to disapprove of this kind of lifestyle. Like there was no but, there was no qualification. It was simply you are loved by God. And it felt daring and courageous and so incredibly powerful To let that love stand on its own and to not have to try to manage it and to not try to manage how we would interpret that.
0: And you mentioned that this was something that was said with some regularity by your colleague. Over time, what did you observe? And I recognize that you can't see inside their their minds or their souls, but what sort of effect did this have on the students that were there in the room?
1: The students began to really internalize God's love for them in certain settings. I think it's what helped them get through they didn't they weren't able to internalize that by and large for the most part they continued to feel like the the campus as a whole is not a safe place for me people think i'm disgusting i will get kicked out if i act out on my orientation but there was a sense in which when they were at refuge when they were in the chaplain's office with other queer students or with me or with my colleague where they felt like they could really let their guards down and be seen And to know that they weren't going to get in trouble for anything they did, that it was a safe place for them to just come bring their questions, their doubts, their hopes, their struggles, and and to be met with love in that place. It was really healing for them.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement working for full inclusion for LGBTQ plus people in Christian communities. We're speaking today about her recent book, Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. So we've been talking a lot about narratives. We've been talking about the kinds of messages that we get from Christian leadership, and one message that I think rings out, especially in evangelical circles, and I guarantee you, some of my listeners at this point have had it ringing in the back of their heads. This person, Julie Rogers, keeps saying that she's queer and Christian, but doesn't she know that it's not possible to be both of those things? You you can be one or the other, but you can't be both. Why does doesn't she understand that? And why isn't the host asking her about this? And so I'm going to put it to you when you are presented with that kind of narrative that says, no, listen, there's a stark divide here. If you are queer, then you are not Christian. And if you're a Christian, then you cannot be queer. How do you begin to address and speak to, I'll say it, that kind of nonsense?
1: (laughs) Well, people with that belief are usually, have usually heard that from their leaders. And they've heard that from their pastors. They've heard that from the people that they've given moral authority in their life. And those pastors are coming from a very specific interpretation of the Bible. It's important to know that's one of many thousands of interpretations in the Christian church alone. And that there are so many ways in which we no longer, for instance, people love to to quote the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, where he essentially Denounces like same sex relationships, but they don't take into account the ways that Paul, literally a couple books over in First Corinthians, says that women need to be silent in the church and they need to wear coverings over their heads. And this is both this both of these are in the New Testament. They're coming from the same person. And many of us have been able to see that, hey, he was in a culture, it was a patriarchal culture. Women weren't seen as equal. They were seen as the property of their husbands. And what we did see as well on that issue was Jesus moving toward women, Jesus being willing to be seen in the middle of the day with women who were married multiple times or who were seen as scandalous in the eyes of their community. And I believe that it's a really good model for how we might understand the scripture's Today, in a context where we do now have people being out and open about being uh, gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, I believe that we would see Jesus moving toward all of us and saying, hey, those of you who have been pushed to the margins of your society, who have been deemed unclean, like the lepers in the Bible, you are a part of the family of God. And this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It looks like all of us coming around the table together and sharing meals and sharing stories and growing in love together. So... I would want people to understand that their view is one view among many, and I would want to encourage them to have a little more humility about their perspectives. It's really hard being human. We're talking about faith is very complex and multifaceted, and we need to be able to have a lot of room for mystery. And within that, as we continue to wrestle with big theological questions, we need to make sure we're prioritizing love. And what we know is that a teaching that causes harm to vulnerable people which traditional conservative teaching about same-sex relationships does cause harm. Any teaching that causes harm is not going to be the way that God intends. It's not going to be a way of love. And so I've choose to rest in a God who is merciful and a God who delights in those who have been pushed down and pushed aside. And, and Christians can do that as well. And if we're wrong, surely God will have mercy on us because we're doing it we're doing that out of love and out of a sense of compassion and kindness and desire for dignity and well-being among the queer people
0: in our communities. That is so powerful what you just said. And what I want listeners to understand is that when they come to your book, Out Love, they will see that you know of what you speak. You have seen the fruits of a message that says that you were unclean and you have seen the fruits the differing fruits of a message that says you are loved and accepted as you are and and to me it's so powerful And so raw, the way that you present this through your own life, in some cases through your own body and certainly through your relationships, how strongly that distinction is between the message of uncleanness and what it leads to and the message of love and acceptance and what it leads to. But for listeners who maybe are still on the fence and think that this is just liberal mumbo jumbo, how can we begin to help them understand and go back into their own traditions their own interpretations of the Christian tradition to begin to understand that the damage is not just what they're doing to other people, but also it's damaging to themselves to hold these positions.
1: You know, I would say start by listening to uh, some of the LGBTQ people in your life. I found that the people around me, a lot of the straight folks around me, would really listen to and, and follow me and see the ways that I found such freedom and such joy and such life since I've been able to really come out they're starting to realize ways in which they were also having to cut off parts of themselves and perform in order to belong. It's like they've been able to come out of some of their own closets. And I think, you know, we grow and we heal in community. And so I would say engage in relationships with people who make you a little nervous, who seem a little bit different, and allow yourself to be surprised by the ways that you might see God moving through them.
0: You know, I I started this show... 10 years ago with the intention of really giving people of faith in their great diversity a space to talk about the ways in which faith impacts their lives, not simply at an intellectual level, but in the very kind of fabric of their day-to-day existence. And I don't often do this with guests, but I'm I'm really moved to ask right now, where are you seeing God's delight in your world right now? What are some of the fruits of this new way of walking in your faith that you have seen seen maybe just recently or maybe as that have been growing for some time, but I would love for my listeners to hear some places where you can find God delighting in the you and the genius of who you are.
1: Hmm. I think I have had a lot of opportunities as people have followed me and been able to come around and see that maybe they were wrong and maybe they had contributed to teaching or worldview that, that, that contributed to shame for me growing up to be able to see both in my own life and among many of my LGBTQ friends that we have the opportunity to extend forgiveness and to say it's it is really hard being human and we understand like where that was coming from and we're just so thankful to see that you've moved and that you're here now and we're not interested at this point in relitigating the past let's just go do some good in the world together and I think that's a really beautiful. I think it's a incredible, you know, in this time of real polarization and, and real sort of cynicism around the possibility for reconciliation and restored relationships. I think it's profoundly moving to see how our faith can be a resource for us to extend uh, forgiveness and to, to begin to mend relationships that have been broken to work toward healing.
0: Well, and I just want listeners to know that if they pick up your book, Out Love, that's exactly the way that you conclude the book as well, with this invitation both to the reader, but also to those that we've been introduced to through the various stories of your journey who maybe are not yet reconciled to you. It's this open invitation for reconciliation, for healing, and for deepening of relationships. I think it's extraordinarily beautiful, and I found it to be very inspiring. I I am aware that this book is your life, and it is the journey that you have taken, and it was a brave and courageous thing to put it on the page. I know that must have been work to do, and I'm so grateful that you did that work and that you took the time to write this book out, love. But I also want to thank you, Julie Rogers, for taking the time to talk about your book with me and my listeners today.
1: Mm, Absolutely. Thank you so much, David.
0: We've been speaking today with Julie Rogers. She's a writer, speaker, and leader in the movement, working for full inclusion for LGBTQ plus persons in Christian communities. She played a significant role in shutting down Exodus International, the largest conversion therapy organization in the world, and she was also the first openly gay person to be hired by an Evangelical Christian college. She's featured in the documentary Pray Away, which aired in 2020. It's a documentary about the movement to, quote, pray the gay away, and her writing has been featured in publications such as Sojourners, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Time Magazine. She lives with her wife in Washington, D.C., and today we've been talking about her book, Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, Here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio.